For Arizona Public Media, I'm Tony Paniagua, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Mark McLemore is out this week. Coming up, Senator John McCain returns to Washington, D.C. this week and makes pivotal decisions about health care. A total solar eclipse will be visible to millions of people in the United States next month, and Tucson astronomers are preparing for the event. Tucson's Museum of Contemporary Art is celebrating its 20th anniversary and has new plans for the future. And in the art of paying attention, artist and storyteller Beth Surtit focuses on a fascinating raptor that lives among us. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Senator John McCain was recently diagnosed with an aggressive type of brain cancer, but the serious condition is not keeping him from doing his job in Washington, D.C. The senator returned to the Capitol this week to take part in controversial efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, commonly referred to as Obamacare. His decisions are being praised and scorned. Joining me is political reporter Christopher Conover with the latest. The major decision made on Thursday night, our time here in Tucson. It was Thursday night, late, uh, just before 11 o'clock, which means on the East Coast it was early Friday morning. The Senate was trying to pass what they were calling the skinny repeal, which was a repeal of Obamacare. And three Republicans voted against it, uh, uh, Senator Murkowski from Alaska, Senator Collins from Maine, and then Senator McCain voted against it. He was the last one to vote against it, and they held the bill open for vote. Normally, it's 15 minutes in the Senate. It was close to an hour. Vice President Pence was on the floor trying to convince Senator McCain to vote for it. Uh, the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, Senator McConnell, was trying to convince Senator McCain to vote for it. There was a conversation between Senator McCain and somebody off the floor. Senator McCain came walking back in from that conversation, walked up to the clerk's desk, caught the clerk's eye, gave them a thumbs down. There was an audible gasp at that point and then applause and the voting was finished and the bill had failed. And the senator says he is looking for some changes, and he is consulting with Governor Ducey about this. He is consulting with the governor. And on earlier in the week when he returned and gave that now kind of infamous speech, he laid out exactly what he needed to have in a health care bill before he voted for it. I will not vote for this bill as it is today. It's a shell of a bill right now. We all know that. I have changes urged by my state's governor that will have to be included to earn my support for final passage of any bill. And Christopher, the senator is also talking about cooperation in the Senate, not just Republicans versus Democrats, trying to work together again. That was the big theme of his Tuesday speech was we all have to work together. We all have to get back to what he calls regular order in the Senate, where bills are proposed. They go through a committee process, not uh, using parliamentary tricks uh, to get things passed. And he talked about the health care bill. He predicted it was going to fail. 
looks like he was right on that one. And then he laid out again the, what he wanted to see happen process-wise. Let's see if we can pass something that will be imperfect, full of compromises, and not very pleasing to implacable partisans on either side. But that might provide workable solutions to problems Americans are struggling with today. It should be noted, Tony, that the senator this week also um, proposed three amendments to the the House health care bill uh, and that that is sitting there and available for a vote. And that would help get him on board. All three of those amendments are things he talked with Governor Ducey about, and they protect Medicaid access here in Arizona, which is health insurance for low-income residents. It's heavily federally funded. A lot of the repeals take that money away, which hurts the states. And Governor Ducey, no fan of the Affordable Care Act, but he needs that protected and has been very, very open about that even after the vote. Because there is talk or concern that hundreds of thousands of people here in Arizona would lose their coverage. Huge numbers, and it's huge dollars to the state uh, that would also go away. So what happens to fill those dollars? What happens to all those people? One of the things Senator McCain proposed was a 10-year step down of the federal Medicaid funding. That way it gives Arizona and all the other states time to figure out what they're going to do financially and practically. And what about Senator Jeff Flake? How did he vote? Senator Flake voted for the repeal. Uh, He spent a lot of time talking with Senator McCain Thursday night and Friday morning, depending on which time zone you were in. Uh, But in the end, he voted with the rest of the Republicans and voted for uh, the repeal. And I would imagine, as we mentioned in the beginning, lots of praise and a lot of people upset uh, with Senator McCain. On the floor at one point, Senator McCain was uh, talking with Democrats. They were laughing. He got a hug from Senator Dianne Feinstein. Uh, Republicans, not so happy with Senator McCain right now. So what's next for this health care vote? Right now, everybody is home. All the senators are home. They now have to regroup and try again. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Christopher Conover. In less than a month, a large swath of the United States will fall into midday darkness during the first total solar eclipse to cross the country in 99 years. Science reporter Sarah Hammond spoke to solar astronomer Matt Penn about his Citizen Science Eclipse Project and what to expect here in southern Arizona. Hi, I'm Matt Penn. I'm an astronomer at the National Solar Observatory in Tucson, Arizona, and I'm the principal investigator behind the Citizen Kate experiment. KATE stands for the Continental America Telescopic Eclipse Experiment. We have 68 volunteer groups lined up across the country from Oregon to South Carolina, and we're equipping them with identical equipment so that uh, in sequence they can each take images of the solar corona during the upcoming uh, eclipse on August 21st. Now at any one spot along the eclipse path, you'll see the corona for only about two minutes, but by taking data from each site, as the moon shadow crosses that site and combining it to form a merged movie, we'll be able to look at the corona for about 93 minutes of real time. Tell me a little bit about the teams who will be doing these observations. We've got a really fantastic group of volunteers and you know, I owe them a debt of gratitude. So we have about 27 universities, about 22 high schools. 
We have people from five different national research labs. And then we have a group of citizen scientists, just amateur astronomers, who want to participate in the event and make an impact on the science. It's a really diverse group, and uh, it's, uh, it's an amazing experience to work with them all. And the path of totality crosses how many states? There are technically 14 states that cross. Uh, the, the lunar shadow crosses those. But we have volunteers in, I think, 10 different states along the path of totality. Uh, from Oregon to South Carolina. So early on, the state coordinators were choosing, while they were choosing the locations, we made sure that um, the telescope at one site would see the corona before the telescope at the previous site was uncovered. So the lunar shadow would cover up the telescope to the east just before it uncovered the telescope to the west. We have 10 seconds of overlap in some cases, and in some cases more than a minute of overlap. So in theory, as long as there are no clouds on the day of the eclipse, we'll have continuous coverage from coast to coast. How long have you been managing this project? Um, I came up with the idea for this experiment back in uh, 2014, so it's been three years. So, so back in 2013, several of my colleagues wrote papers that describe how unique this eclipse is. It passes over 2,500 miles of the United States, and we have a system of roads and highways that crisscross the path of totality. This enables us to get in and, and observe the corona from many locations along the eclipse path. So... An observer in the path of totality, what what will they experience? What will it be like? Well, a total eclipse is extremely memorable. I mean, when you see one, you'll never forget it. Um, you know, ultimately, I think it boils down to the fact that the sun shouldn't go away in the middle of the day. So if you're there at noontime, uh, say in, in Missouri, um, it'll get dark and the sun will just disappear. And something inside you tells you that that's just wrong. The sun is not supposed to go away at the middle of the day. Um, the temperature drops a little bit. The sky becomes sort of like a twilight uh, color. You'll see planets and interesting atmospheric effects. And the animals also behave strangely. Birds will, will behave differently like they would at, uh, at dusk. And for those of us who can't make it to the path of totality, say here in southern Arizona, what will we experience? What will it be like for us? Right. So the eclipse itself will be visible from Central America all the way through Canada as a partial eclipse. And so in Tucson, Arizona, the sun at maximum will be covered up, 65% of it will be covered up by the moon. So you may notice a little bit of uh, decreased lighting during the day. And certainly if you have eclipse or solar viewing glasses and you were able to look at the sun, you would see that there is a crescent shape uh, instead of the normal round shape of the sun. Um, the event, uh, the partial eclipse will last about an hour and a half or two hours uh, for this wide range of, of people. So you in theory, 500 million people will be able to see the partial eclipse, and then the people in the central path of totality will be able to see the total eclipse. Now, among the teams who will be gathering data is one from here in southern Arizona. Tell me, in, in Tucson, tell me a little bit about that team and how you've been working with them. Exactly. Um, you know, actually, we have uh, four groups from Tucson going to different uh, sites in the project. Um, but my favorite group is from Sienega High School. Jack Erickson is the astronomy teacher there, and he's working with the astronomy club at Sienega. Um, the Vail School District has been very generous. They've uh, offered to uh, pay for the travel for these students. It'll be a large group of 10 students and, and chaperones. Um, and then the Research Corporation has agreed to purchase the equipment for the Sienega High School group. So they will take it to the eclipse, and then they, they keep it after the eclipse. Um, we've been working with them. We actually held our Tucson workshop at Cienega, and, uh, and the students were very uh, excited to get the equipment and uh, to figure out how to start using it. Uh, they'll be going to a tiny place called Pawnee City, Nebraska. So we're working with a little library there 
and uh, they'll be located at the in the town library taking data on the day of the eclipse. And where will you be on August 21st? So I'll be at another site um, that we have, again, in a small location called uh, Weezer, Idaho. I'll be at the high school there in Weezer. Um, I'll be bringing my family up there to uh, help take data. Um, and actually, it's turned out that uh, many people from Boise, Idaho, will be going to Weezer and the surrounding area. So it'll be actually pretty crowded on the day of the eclipse. And what will you be doing on Eclipse Day? You're going to stitch these, uh, these movies together. Tell me a little bit about that. Right. So I personally have two jobs on the day of the eclipse. We're taking a special um, prototype telescope to Weezer, and I'll be taking some calibration data to try to help us stitch our, our data together spatially with data from a satellite uh, from a NASA mission. Uh, but then after the eclipse is over in Weezer, I'll be huddled in a little dark room looking at the data that people will upload. As part of the process, um, after people collect the data, we ask them to do a quick analysis on a, a set of images and then upload that to a common website that we've been using. Um, so I'll be taking images from that website and hopefully stitching them together into a first cut movie of what we see that day. I think a lot of folks here in Arizona will probably want to go outside and have a look on August 21st. So what are some safety tips for, for being able to watch the eclipse and being safe? Right, so because the eclipse is a partial eclipse here in Tucson, um, in Southern Arizona, it's, it's really um, important to, to use safety. I mean. Common sense really uh, really applies here. You can't stare at the sun, um, and uh, if you did, you would damage your eyes. So the best way to look at the sun during a partial eclipse is to use solar viewing glasses. These are very, very dark glasses. Um, they're not sunglasses. Normal sunglasses won't work. These are much darker than those. Um, but solar viewing glasses uh, should be available uh, in many locations now, and uh, they al allow you to safely look at the sun directly and see the eclipse, as well as any bright, uh, I'm sorry, as well as any uh, large sunspots that might be uh, visible on the sun. Um, another thing you can do is use a pinhole projector. So you can take a piece of cardboard and, and poke a little hole into it and project an image of the sun on the ground or on a, another piece of cardboard and see the crescent shape of the moon. Southern Arizona will experience a partial solar eclipse on Monday, August 21st, starting at 9.16 a.m. The maximum effects will occur at 10.36 a.m., and the phenomenon will end here at 12.03 p.m. MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Tucson, is beginning additional programs in the community which will increase opportunities for artists, students, and residents. This, as the facility also celebrates its 20th anniversary and gets ready for new chapters. I spoke to MOCA's new executive director, who recently moved here from California for this position. Ginger Schulich Porcella, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Tony. So you are the executive director and chief curator at MOCA. Why don't you tell us a bit about how you got here and how long have you been there? Sure. I just moved here about three months ago from San Diego. Uh, prior to coming here, I was running a contemporary art center called the San Diego Art Institute in Balboa Park. I came here specifically for the job. I really love the arts community here in Tucson. I love Tucson's relationship to the arts community in Mexico. And as a curator, I work with a lot of artists from Mexico. So that was very appealing to me. Where else have you worked and what have you done in the other locations? Before San Diego, I was in New York for about 10 years. I was the director of a space called Flux Factory in Queens, which is an artist 
residency program and exhibition space, a live workspace. And I was also the executive director of Art Connects New York in Manhattan, which commissions artists to create installations and social service agencies across New York City. And what do you think about working here in Tucson, 60 miles from the border with Mexico? I love it. I think Tucson is a beautiful city. I think uh, the arts community here is really great and supportive. Everyone has been really welcoming to me here, uh, moving here, and it's been really great getting to explore the art being made in this transnational region, especially getting to explore Nogales. So it's been a lot of fun. And I know you just got here, you're just getting your feet wet, but what are some of the visions that you have moving forward for MOCA? Sure. One of the first initiatives that we've just launched is an artist in residency program. I've run several artist in residence programs, and I think that they're really important for developing and sustaining an arts community for uh, the local community and beyond. Um, we're really beefing up our education programs. We have some really fantastic in-museum programs, but this fall we're also launching MOCA satellite programs in Title I schools across Pima County. And um, we also have a very robust exhibition schedule um, and a lot of special events and public programs coming up. Okay, let's talk about some of these programs individually. How does the Artist in Residence program work? Sure. Uh, the deadline for our current artist in residence program to apply is August 1st. Um, contemporary artists of all mediums can apply. And we have live workspace on site because, as you know, Mocha Tucson is in an old firehouse. So there's residential quarters on the top floor, which makes it really conducive to artists to create new work there. So let's say I apply, I'm an artist in another state, another country, or, or just locally? Uh, how Anyone can apply. Artists from out of the country, uh, local artists, artists from across the United States. And we're getting a really interesting cross-section of artists applying. I've put together a really great panel of uh, local curators and artists to select the, the artists. So it'll be interesting to see who we get. And what about the outreach program for Title I schools, which have a high number of low-income students? So we've been doing some really great uh, in-museum programs. Our Minor Mutiny program has been running for some time, um, specifically geared towards LGBT teens. And we have a Young Phobes program for youth 8 through 10. But starting this fall, we're launching MOCA Satellite, where every week we're going to have teaching artists in schools, in Title I schools across Pima County, so that we can really bring the great work that we're doing in the museum outside into the community to children that really need the access to contemporary art. And they learn new skills, whether they stay in art or don't ever study more art, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think all studies show that access to arts education at an early age leads children to become lifelong learners, and for me, most importantly, museum goers. And we love seeing youth on site in our space, um, you know, creating work in the galleries and really activating the space. The museum is not just for adults, it's for kids too. Why are you so passionate about this? You've moved around to different places, and here you are, the executive director of MOCA in Tucson. I uh, like to spread the good word of contemporary art throughout the land. No, um, I think that contemporary art is super important to our society and being able to access fresh ideas and to think about the world uh, in a new way. And I think contemporary art teaches us something about ourselves, but also the world around us. And I think through the medium of contemporary art, we can talk about the critical issues of the day through a different medium that maybe other ways that you cannot. So Ginger, 20 years of MOCA, humble beginnings, it's grown over the years. What would you like to say about that? Yeah, MOCA Tucson is currently celebrating its 20th anniversary. We started on Tool. 
as an artist-run space to really support the local arts community and contemporary art practices. Seven years ago, we moved into the current space at the old firehouse on Church of McCormick. We have about 26,000 square feet of space, exhibition spaces on the ground floor, uh, public programming and education space on the second floor, and the artist residency on the third floor. And for people who are not familiar with MOCA and for those who are familiar with the organization, there's a big celebration happening this Saturday from noon to midnight. Absolutely. The celebration of our 20th anniversary on Saturday is our gift back to the community for supporting us over the past 20 years. The events are free. We have hands-on art-making activities for kids during the day. Um, We're screening two of my favorite films from the 90s, Singles and Reality Bites, during the afternoon. And at night, we're going to have a 90s dance party with local 90s alt-rock cover band, The Lollapaloozers. And you'll be there once again from noon to midnight. Yes, absolutely. Please come. Well, Ginger, Shalik, Porcella, thank you very much for joining us and good luck with the next 20 years. Thank you. I appreciate it. Our desert monsoon brings welcome moisture to the region, and while the hot and muggy weather may not be comfortable for many humans, it is a great time for Mother Nature. In The Art of Paying Attention, local artist and storyteller Beth Surtit shares her outside observations, where she comes across interesting creatures, such as hawks that hunt in groups. Stuart Udall wrote, Get to know the land and the messages it whispers to those willing to listen. I'm willing, but this is the city. No whispers here. The sound of cars and machinery is pretty constant, although never louder than the bird song. I heard noises on the patio, thought it was that large, brassy ground squirrel that had been hanging around, so I walked out to take a look. Whoa! Fierce! The Harris's hawk glared at me with cantaloupe-colored eyes. It's unsettling to be that close to an angry raptor, hissed at me as it flew to a eucalyptus tree to scold me for all the neighboring animals to hear. Big, intent, used to winning, I could tell. Lush, russet legs, substantial talons, and a beak that could snatch the cat away. The hawk returned the next afternoon, announcing as it flew overhead. The cat, no fool, crouched by the kitchen door, watching through the screen. A baby Anna's hummingbird, old enough to flash crimson as it moved its head, young enough to be fluff, allowed me to stand near and watch it watch me. The next morning, Hawk flew in, perched on a telephone pole, dominating for only a moment before two mockingbirds gave him what for screeching, scolding, pecking at his head and chasing him across the sky. His small but mighty escorts persisted, giving Hawk no chance to turn back. Within a week, where there had been one Harris's Hawk, there were now four large birds, and I had their attention. It was around 7.30 in the morning, 88 degrees on its way to 107, and I was standing alongside the road by my house, holding aloft what I assumed was theirs, a dove, its head barely attached. I'd heard loud, repetitive, plaintive calls, 
different from the announcing voices, then two voices, maybe more, back and forth like echoes in a canyon. I spotted a twosum in a leafy eucalyptus, a third called from a backlit branch down the road, and a fourth on a utility pole, a risky choice. I dangled the surprisingly heavy kill by its feet, then set it down and moved away into the shade and waited. But no one swooped in as the heat of the day clung to me. Harris's hawks hunt in a group, flushing out the prey into the talons of the others. The alpha female might mate with two males, and the offspring can stay around as long as three years. The four here are all large, but two often stay together, and the other two are somewhat smaller. Monsoon season has just started. Late in the day, the hawks stand in the steady rain, wings spread like dark angels. Lightning splits the sky as the raptors call to each other, their calls bouncing around the darkening night. Just above my neighbor's house, three hawks huddle like Shakespeare's witches amidst the metal coils and wires on top of a wood pole, intent on the kill the largest hawk is standing on and tearing apart. It must be something big, rabbit or ground squirrel. I see thick strands of guts hanging from the hawk's beak. The next day, with visions of electricity, water, and dead hawks in my head, I tracked down the number for the Raptor Protection Program at Tucson Electric Power. In the early morning after that, I stand under the power poles around my house as Jim from TEP points out the protective coverings that have resulted in the raptor population being larger in the city than outside it. He explains that the covering should keep the bird's wings, with an average span of 40 to 47 inches, from touching the power sources on either side, causing the bird to act as a conduit. But what about the water, I ask? And he tells me that the mixture of birds and water can still mean death. I've been in the city only a few months. My neighbors, who have been here for years, say, the animals seem to find you. I think not. I think I'm the intruder in animal territory. You can hear our stories again and see photographs and illustrations on our Arizona Spotlight page by going to news.azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm Tony Paniagua, producer and host this week. Mark McLemore will return next week. Mm-hmm.